we are in this story, in this journey together. For the last few weeks, we've been going through the seven letters in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation. We're calling it Dear Church because as Jesus is speaking these words to these original seven churches in Western Turkey, he's also speaking to us. And so for those of you that are jumping in for the first time or have maybe missed a few, um, we've got a map we're going to throw up here on the screen for you to kind of see where we've been. So if you look here in the bottom left-hand corner, there's an island called Patmos. It's circled in a light blue circle. John, who was an original follower of Jesus, has been exiled there by the Roman Empire. And so Jesus gives him a vision while he's on the island. A word for the church. That church is written on a scroll and it's delivered to seven churches around the Roman road, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. And then this week, we're going to talk about Thyatira, the word to the church in Thyatira. And we've got two kingdoms that are at play. There's the kingdom of God and the Roman Empire, or the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdoms of this world. Those two kingdoms are in conflict. They have conflicting values oftentimes, and so God's people are caught up in the middle. And they have to determine which voice is going to be louder. Which voice am I going to follow? Where does my allegiance lie? Is it a lie with Jesus or with the emperor? And they have to wrestle through these things. So last week, Pastor David talked about Pergamum. And Pergamum was kind of the Washington, D.C. It's a political hub of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Well, this week we're talking about Thyatira. And if Pergamum was the Washington, D.C., Thyatira was kind of the Pittsburgh of the original, of those churches of that era. It's a city of craftsmen, of people who worked in copper, in bronze, metal workers. And they were part of guilds. So if you were going to sell your goods at the market, you'd be a part of a guild. And these guilds had a patron deity, and the patron deity of the guilds in Thyatira is Apollo. We've got a picture of Apollo right there. Apollo is the son of Zeus, or as they would have thought, the son of God. And so you would go and you would celebrate at the guild parties. They had celebrations. They'd celebrate their work. And they'd ask for Apollo's blessing, that Apollo would continue to cause their work to flourish and give them great skill in their craftsmanship. They'd ask for Apollo's blessing. But that wasn't all that happened at the guild parties. These were all male gatherings. And at the guild parties, there were young women available for men to use however they wanted to use. Because in that culture, relationships were fairly open. Yes, you might be married, but that wouldn't stop you from indulging yourself, and nobody gave a second thought of it in that culture. So you'd go and you'd offer up some praise to Apollo. You might dabble in some things here and there, and that was just part of it. And if you didn't participate in the guild celebrations, you'd be blacklisted. Your goods couldn't come to market. No one would buy what you had to offer. And you had a real problem on your hands. Because how are you going to put food on your family's table? 
And so as a follower of Jesus, you've got a real situation on your hands. Am I going to stay faithful to Jesus? Or am I going to fall into this culture of infidelity? And so that becomes a major question for the church in Thyatira. How do you remain faithful in a culture of infidelity? So we're going to look at this letter through the lens of a faithful relationship. So if you want to follow along this morning, I encourage you to open a Bible or your Bible app. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18. We're going to walk through verse by verse to see what Jesus has to say to the churches and to us today. So Jesus writes through John in verse 18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? And the angel, as you've heard the last few weeks if you've been here, the angel's referring to the leader or the pastor of that congregation. These are the words of the Son of God. Wait, isn't Apollo the Son of God? No, Jesus is the true Son of God. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Very specific words for the church of Thyatira. Jesus is the true Son of God, not Apollo, not the emperor. Jesus' eyes are like blazing fire. If you work with metal, if you work with cra different crafts and different goods, you know what it means to be around blazing fire. You're going to use it, right, to shape that metal. Jesus uses that image to describe the intensity of his gaze, how he looks into our hearts, his passion for relationship, his passion for us. And his feet are like burnished bronze. This is sturdy metal. He's not going to be moved. He's not going to be moved out of relationship. This is someone that you can count on. His feet are like burnished bronze. And that was familiar to them because that's what they worked in. He continues on in verse 19. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. And this is a beautiful picture of this church. Their love for people, their love for God, leads them to serve one another. I was just with a group of high school students this last week, serving in the community. And we emphasized over and over again, why do we serve people? Because Jesus loves us. And we want to share that love with the world. And we want to do that in tangible ways that people can understand and can experience. And this is happening in the church of Thyatira. And it's a beautiful thing. The love corresponds to service. And they have faith. They believe. They believe that this God this God of the scriptures, this God of the Hebrews, that this is the God, not a God. And when they give their lives to this God, it causes them to hold firm, to persevere, because there's so much pressure for them. Again, for many of them, making a decision to follow Jesus alone meant I might not be able to feed my family. But their love and their faith leads them to serve and persevere, and they're doing more than they have been doing at first. This was likely a newer congregation full of new believers. A couple weeks ago, I talked about the church of Smyrna, which was kind of birthed out of the Jewish community and had a lot of Jewish Christians that brought all of this knowledge of the God of scriptures with them. 
Thyatira is a different story. It's likely, it's likely Greeks who had been worshiping the pantheon of Greek gods, and they'd walked away from these false gods to follow Jesus. And so think about you when you have little kids. You just want to encourage them, right? Just keep going. Just keep it up. You're doing great. That's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to be encouraging. You're on the right pathway. You're doing more than you were at first. Let's go. Let's keep it going. But remember, this is a scroll that's been rolled out and read aloud. So up until this point, this congregation has to feel awesome about themselves. Man, Jesus sees our love. He sees our faith, our perseverance, our service. We are doing awesome. And then you get to the point where this word comes down. Nevertheless, and you wonder what the feeling in the room is like, yes, yes, nevertheless, okay, (laughs) What do you have for us now, Jesus? I have this against you. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Oh, boy. Let's unpack that a minute. First of all, What's a prophet? A lot of times we think of prophecy, the way I grew up thinking about prophecy was was predicting the future, and it's kind of almost like Christian fortune-telling, right? But a prophet from a biblical standpoint is rooted in Scripture. It's a calling, it's a gifting, it's an office of leadership in the church. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, you have prophets right along with pastors and teachers and shepherds and evangelists. It's all right there. A prophet is someone who speaks the words of the Lord, who speaks into. So it's as much of forthtelling as foretelling. It's trying to speak into a situation. I have a word from the Lord. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. You see it through the New Testament writings. You see it through the life of Jesus where God uses a person to speak a word that the people need to hear. And when they speak, they are literally speaking with the voice of God. This still occurs today. There are still people that God has gifted with a prophetic word. There's a huge responsibility. Because when when you say, I speak with the word of the Lord, that has a lot of weight to it. And if it isn't truly the word of the Lord, you can mislead people into going all kinds of different directions. It's why James says, let very few become teachers because they will be judged more harshly. It's why I'm going to be honest with you when I I wrestle through these texts and I agonize over what to say to you because as much as you might send me an angry email or a text because you didn't like something that I said, you know what? I worry way more about what Jesus thinks about what I said than your text message or email. I'm sorry. But... I'm more concerned that those consequences are a bit more weightier than your email. I'm just saying. I'm just being real. I believe in a real God who really cares about what I say up here. So I, we got to do the work. Because if I'm going to tell you this is what God says, there's accountability to that, right? 
There's responsibility. And so Jezebel, that probably wasn't her name, but Jezebel's in the Old Testament. Jezebel was a person who also was a prophet and who gave false teaching and led the Israelites to worship other gods. And so what Jesus is saying, this person, this woman is a type of person that's like Jezebel. And what, so what is she doing? She's encouraging people to go to the guild parties. Go to church, go to worship, be a part of your congregation. But if you get invited to a guild party, go, enjoy, it's fine. It's not a real God anyway. But we should have a problem with that, right? Because the theme of faithfulness runs through the entire story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is a story of a bride and a groom. God and his people. And you see it right at the beginning, right? God creates Adam and Eve, and there's this beautiful intimacy between them. It talks about God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And then what happens? The enemy, Satan, tempts them into breaking that relationship. They get distracted, kind of like this Jezebel. They get distracted, and sin enters the world like a virus. And we've heard a lot about viruses in the last year, so we're well aware. It infects Adam and Eve's lie, but it infects all of creation. If you read, if you read Genesis 3, there's all sorts of consequences, right? But... God does not give up on his people. Can I get an amen for that? God does not give up on his people. Do you believe that? God does not give up on you. God does not give up on me. God does not give up on us. So the rest of the Bible, you have God pursuing and pursuing and pursuing and chasing after these people. And sometimes it doesn't seem like they really want to follow God. They don't really want to be in this relationship. But God is so passionate. He has eyes like blazing fire. And he loves you. And he wants relationship with you. And he's coming after you. And he will not give up on you. And so that's the story. And you see, if you were to take and study the rest of the book of Revelation, actually, Revelation 17 through 19, chapter 17 through 19, is what do you do if you continue to follow the voice of the Jezebel? What well, ends in pain and destruction? What happens if you follow the voice and become that beautiful bride well, that's Revelation 21 and 22. So in a sense, this letter is a lens that you can look through the rest of the scripture in, which, shameless plug, if you come Wednesday night to hear Dan Morrison, he's going to give you more of that. So I highly recommend you come. You don't even need to register. Just show up. It's going to be fantastic. But it's this lens. The bride and the groom. And I realize, guys, being called a bride, it kind of feels a little weird. It feels a little bit weird to me, too. But, but this is the church, is the bride of Christ. And the, green, the groom is Jesus, and he loves you, and he's desperate for a relationship with you. So he's pursuing you with all of this passion and all of this fire. And in fact, Jesus sees a direct tie in, relation, in our relationships to the relationship with Jesus. That's why our weddings are a sacrament. When a bride and groom look into each other's eyes and make these commitments, it's supposed to be an object lesson for this is how Jesus loves his church. 
And as we're in relationship with each other here in the church, brothers and sisters, we're also supposed to be a model of commitment. The word covenant is in our name. Community covenant church. Community commitment church. That's who we are. We've made a covenant with God and with each other that we are not going to give up on each other just like Jesus does not give up on us. That's the imagery. So what's happening in this passage? Because I'm going to tell you in the next couple of verses, it's going to get disturbing. So I want to set it up for you. Potentially disturbing. Imagine this. Imagine you're, this is now you are all at a wedding, right? And I've, I've officiated several of these ceremonies. You've got the bride and the groom, and it comes to the point in the service where they, look, they grab each other's hands and they look into each other's eyes. And it's this beautiful moment, and they're saying, I commit these things to you in, in sickness and in health, and all these sorts of things, for greater or poor, all these sorts of things. And it's beautiful, right, to see these words of commitment. Could you imagine, while that is happening, one of the wedding party having a com as the groom is giving his vows and looking into his bride's eyes and speaking this truth and these words of love and commitment, that there's somebody in the wedding party being like, hey, when you're done with this, I got this guy I want to set you up with. I mean, you can, you can go and get married to this guy, but I've got somebody else you have to meet. And man, he's great. You're going to have a blast with him. That's what Jezebel, this person, was doing in the congregation. That yes, they'd made a commitment to Jesus, but there's this voice saying, but, there's, but you don't have to just stick with Jesus. You can do Jesus plus whatever else. It's fine. He's a gracious God, right? No. No. As you continue on into verse 21, you do see God's grace. It says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Now think about that for a minute. Go back to the, we're back at the wedding. Bride and groom, vows, this weird, annoying person saying, hey, I'm going to set you up with somebody else. If that happened, we would be outraged, right? Would anybody be outraged? I hope so. <laughs> if not, we, have some, we, have, we need to have a conversation. That's a pastoral counseling appointment that we can set right after the church. Um, we would be outraged. Get that person off the stage. We're trying to have a wedding here. This is a sacrament. It's beautiful. Somebody's messing with the sacrament of marriage. Look at how Jesus even deals with Jezebel. I've given her time to change. Even the one, even the false teacher that's leading the ones astray, Jesus says, I'm giving her time, but she doesn't want to change. So we do have a God of grace. We also have a God of justice. And we got to hold them both. Because to let that go, would you all be okay if we just let that go? It's fine. It's whatever. Just let them, let them keep talking. It's fine if they have just an open relationship. No. Eventually, Jesus has to say, I'm going to put a stop to it. I'm going to warn you. <laughs> the next couple verses, there is a temptation. Temptation number one is that we bail. 
because it's going to get rough. We're going to get into some choppy waters of Scripture. And these are the passages of Scripture. A lot of times we read them and go, oh, I wish that wasn't in there. Let's just flip back a couple more pages and go to something else because I don't want to deal with this is going to get, this is, I don't like it. So that's one option. The other thing that we can do is say, well, I, I don't sacrifice food to idols. And I'm not, I don't go to guild parties, so I, this isn't really for me. This is, a, this is sort of a, oh, it's so bad for the, the Thyatira church. But man, they, they were really messed up, those people over there, and we distance ourselves. But like I said two weeks ago, we cannot take this word and hold it afar and say, oh, look at, look at how bad those, oh, oh. No, this is for us. This is for us. This is a word for us. So hang in there, okay? It's going to get choppy. But this is our responsibility is to dive into all of this, not just the parts that we like. But I want to say one thing before we get into it. And you might want to write this down if you're taking notes or just make a mental note. When you get to a tricky part of Scripture that just bothers you, and if there has never been a piece of Scripture that bothers you, you're not reading the Bible. Because there are some troubling things in the Bible. But Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. What does the rest of the Word say? How do we line up? Because Scripture does not contradict itself. It doesn't. It might seem like it does, but we need, if, if, we, if it looks like it's contradicting itself, we need to do more study and study more context because this is a consistent word, okay? Are, we, are you with me? Okay. Now that I've given you sufficient warning, we're going to get into the rough stuff. Verse 22, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. See what I mean? And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. See what I mean? Until they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. See what I mean? Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Heavy stuff. Does anybody feel a little uncomfortable? Okay, thank you for being honest. The rest of you, I know you are. So, what's going on in this passage? I will make you suffer? I'm going to kill the children? I thought we believed the sanctity of human life. What's going on? So, there's a play on words here. When he says, so I'll cast her in a bed of suffering, he's talking about this infidelity issue. You got a bride and a groom. And adultery happens on, typically, a bed. And so the place you've been running for pleasure is going to cause you great pain. And for any of you who have experienced infidelity or have been around infidelity, you know there is a fair amount of suffering and pain that goes along with it, right? And so what Jesus is saying is that I'm, if you go that route, if you put your heart towards other gods, there's going to be an emptiness there. It might seem 
It might seem good for a while, but the, the end of that is an empty promise, and it will cause you great heartache. And if you follow in with that, it will also, it will, it, that's going to cause you great heartache as well. And then when it talks about children, it's, it's those people who have been influenced by this message, who are carrying on this value of, hey, it's just open. We can just, we got Jesus plus whatever. Jesus says, I'm not going to let this go. I love you too much to let this infection just continue to go through the whole body. That wouldn't be love. It wouldn't be good love for, for Jesus to be like, well, I guess do what you want to do. Have fun and walk away. He's like, no, I've got to address this issue. Because here's the difference between Christianity and any other religion in the world is that it's not about doing this checklist or reciting a mantra or making sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. No, this is about relationship. That this is a God who loves you with all of his heart and he doesn't want to share. And it's not because he's petty. It's not because he's insecure. It's not because he, you know, he, he, needs, he needs us to love him or else he's, he's going to feel bad about himself. No, if God is truly what we just sang about, what we just talked about, why would he let you settle for less? If God is really as great as we talk about and perfect, perfect in love and perfect in commitment and perfect in everything, then why would you want less than perfection? Right? And that's what this is about. Now, if I were to say that, why would you want anything less than this? You'd be like, yeah, right, Tom. Because <laughs> we're broken, we're fallible. We, when we say it, it's arrogance. But when it's God, it's not arrogance because he's God. Because he's everything that we need. We are literally built for a relationship with God. That's how and why we were created. We were created to worship, right, Clayton? Right, Tiffany? Our hearts were created to sync up with God's heart. We were created to be the bride looking into the eyes of our groom and falling deeper and deeper in love with our Lord Jesus. That's why we're here, people. And then we share it, Right? If it's that good, you can't keep it to yourself. I mean, you go see a movie and be like, man, you got to see. Did you guys see Loki? Man, that show with, did you see the ending? Like, we'll talk about that, but man, why won't we talk about Jesus? This one who loves us like crazy. I mean, you, if you got, how many of you guys, when you got engaged, didn't tell anybody? Those of you guys who are married, when somebody gets engaged, it's all over Instagram. It's all over Facebook. It's all over Twitter. Man, look at my ring. Look at what he did. He, he surprised me, and he knelt down, and we were in this garden, and there was flowers, and there was candles, and there was all, there was all this stuff. We, we share that because it's so amazing, right, to have a human being love another human being that much to get into a committed relationship. It's beautiful. We pay literally thousands of dollars to our wedding photographers to capture the moment of the wedding because it's so beautiful. Why don't we do it with Jesus? Because he loves us way more. If you're married, Jesus loves you more than your spouse ever will, ever could. 
And that's half the problems in marriages is when we try to have that person fill something that only God can fill in us. I can't live up to that for Amy. She can't live up to it for me. It's this beautiful commitment, and God is passionate about this relationship. He will not let you just wander off. And so he separates himself from the field, from all the pantheons of Greek gods and Greek goddesses. He says in verse 22, I am the one who searches hearts and minds because Greek gods didn't do that. The Greek gods were like way off up in a Mount Olympus and one, once upon a time they drop down and they do some stuff. And, but they don't go in, they don't, they're not in your heart or searching your mind the same way. No, I'm, I am the God who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. If you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you haven't said, God, I can't do this on my own. I desperately need the grace of God. If you haven't done that, then it is on you. It is on how well you've done and how much good you've done. And spoiler alert, none of you have done enough. Even if you're the, you know, most beautiful person that's ever lived and have done all these beautiful things, like, it's never going to be enough. So if you play that game, that's how you're going to be judged. So now I say to the rest of you, verse 24, in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, and probably, again, that's a play on words. She probably said, hey, this is God's deep secret, that you can do whatever you want. He said, no, that's if you have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not oppose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. It's perfect that we're reading this this week because this is Olympic language. Anybody watching the Olympics? A few of you guys? They have a podium, right? First, second, third place. That's different heights. On that top tier, that's what they're talking about. That's the one who's the victor. And back in the ancient Olympic Games that were happening during this riding, they got a crown. So every time, I want to just invite you to do this. If you're watching the Olympics, every time you see somebody take the gold and stand on the top of the podium, that's you. If you're with Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, that's you. You're the victor. You're on the top of the podium. You've got a gold medal in life. You win life, which is probably more important than the 400 intermediate medley, right? <laughs> life is the more important event. You win. You're on the top of the podium. Congratulations. But you've got to hold on. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give the authority over the nations. The one who rules them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's like, what's with the ruling with iron and dashing the pottery? Well, every nation thinks they're never-ending, Right? Every society that's ever been established on the face of the earth thinks it's going to be eternal. But I got news for you. 
You can go to Greece or Turkey today and see this. It's, it's in ruins. Nobody lives in those buildings anymore. It's a big pile of stone with moss and stuff growing out of it. Didn't last forever. Even though the Roman Empire said, Caesar is God and this is the eternal kingdom. Even Hitler said it was going to be, what, a thousand-year Reich. How long did that last? Not long. It, looked, it may look very imposing. It may look very intimidating. It may look very powerful. But in, in comparison to the kingdom of God, it is but a fraction of a second. So where do you give your allegiance? And you can see this in the book of Daniel. You'll see all these different nations that are laid out, and they're made out of, in Daniel's vision, all these different kinds of material. And iron at this point in history was the metal. He's saying none of these kingdoms will compare. None of them will last like the kingdom of God. So what do we learn from this letter? First, that Jesus is the faithful one, and he's always pursuing relationship. Always. He is always seeking you out, even if you're not seeking him out. He is always pursuing relationship. He is right now. He's pursuing relationship with you. And our relationships with each other are designed to reflect our relationship with God. We talked about that, the image of the bride and the groom and brothers and sisters together. We are to set an example, so let's be nice to each other. (laughs) Let's actually love each other. The reason why people are leaving church and the churches in in droves is that we fight each other. Now, I understand. I've been married long enough to know that you're going to get in a fight. You're going to get in an argument. You're going to get in a disagreement. That's just part of it. But when you hang in there, When we hang in this covenant with each other, some of us have siblings that we, anybody ever had an argument with your brother or sister? Those of you got siblings? Yeah, it happens, right? Get annoying. But is there that covenant that we can hold on to, fueled by Jesus? So continue to deepen your relationship. There are so many things in this world that distract us, that get us off track, that demand our devotion, demand our attention. Don't get distracted. Maybe you've got to write something down and put it on your dashboard of your car or put it on your mirror in the morning when you wake up or put it right next to your bed when you, when you hit your alarm in the morning, but you, don't get distracted. Don't be seduced to settle for something that's less than Jesus. Because no one will love you like Jesus does. Nothing will fill your heart like Jesus will. It just won't. Many of us try and continue to try. But it's like anything else that's empty. It seems good for a while, but it just doesn't last. So know that today... Jesus offers out his hands. And he's gazing into your eyes and he's speaking words of commitment, words of love to say, I love you and I am not going to give up on you. 
I love you and I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to cast you out. I want relationship with you. This is the God that we sing about. This is the God we serve. This is the God that we love, that we study about. So hang in there. Keep your eyes on him. 